This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. I want to invite this woman back because she has an amazing career and I want to know more about it. And sometimes, you know, people come on specifically for a thing and I'm just like, tell me more. I need to know more. So she's back. Vice President, Senior Vice President for Social Impact at MasterCard. Let me welcome Salah Goss back to the show. Hi. Hi. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm very happy to be here. Listen, um... I, I need some inside. We all, we need to know the inside workings of money, how one rises up to the, through the ranks of, of a place like MasterCard. Before we do that, what, what is MasterCard? Um, a lot of us have that symbol on our debit cards, on our credit cards. It's like that little, some of us have MasterCard. Some of us have the other thing that begins with V. What, what is it exactly? What does it do? MasterCard, and I get this a lot, so it's a good question. MasterCard is a technology company. And the easiest way to describe it is we are the technology that allows you to stand in front of a terminal, put your card in or tap or do a digital payment and for it to go through seamlessly anywhere in the world. So we've never issued a card. We've never issued credit. That's your bank that does that. But we're the technology that empowers payments globally. Okay, so, and and I think it's important for us to think through this because this is a whole multi-billion-dollar company, which only allows for bank to talk or to to communicate with person, right? It's the the way station that your money passes through, or is it? It's the uh, the tech that allows your money to get from the bank to your to your pocketbook or to I say pocketbook. People say I'm old for that. Y'all can go ahead and scratch from the bank, from your money, from from the bank to your pocketbook or from your bank to the store to buy that pocketbook. It's the whole ecosystem. And there's different ways that can happen, different rails, as we call them. But yes, if you think about the ecosystem of an interoperating money. MasterCard is the, we have the rails to do that and to make that work. And it can be from in-app ordering. So like if you purchase something online, there's ways you can purchase things that you're seeing on your TV or even on your dashboard. So think about the movement of money between uh, physical spaces like people or merchants or even in a digital world like e-commerce or um, from your, from Apple Pay, paying from your phone paying from Siri, different devices. So it's interoperation of, of funds. How does what MasterCard does, how, how does it uh, relate to, say, my crypto wallet? How is it different or the same? Good question. Well, that is a could be a longer answer, but I think the short answer is that crypto, so we have teams that work on crypto. We have solutions in crypto, Crypto is a type of currency that we can deal with. There's fiat currency like money, there's crypto, there's central bank backed digital currency, there's distributed ledger. Those are different types of ways that money can move and we can facilitate the movement of that money and services around that money as well, just like we can with the credit card or your pocketbook. <laughs> purse, whatever. Uh, so a lot of here. All right. <laughs> your 
So, so I, 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 I wanted to have this conversation with you, first of all, to, to talk about your journey to, to being a vice president, senior vice president uh, at uh, MasterCard. But also, like, I need us to understand wealth better. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of us work hard. We were just talking with uh, Misha Cross and Brittany Williams about student loan debt uh, that primarily black women are saddled with because we have more degrees than anyone else. But the money isn't catching up. You know, the jobs, the income, the the wealth building, the investments. And so I I want to kind of like go all the way back and, and understand how money moves how currency moves so that we can understand our role in it. Cause most of the time we've been currency and in many ways we still are currency. And I'm talking about black people specifically because we mm-hmm. drive corporate uh, entities. We drive stocks. We, we drive, we are the engine uh, behind Financial the success. Performance. Yeah, we mm-hmm. are, we are, we're, we're the uh, disproportionate purchasers of, of things. So there, and therefore those things rely on us, but we somehow are left out of the, the wealth of it all. Right. So t- can you walk us through a little bit of like, what is that wealth t- building to you? For me personally, um, when I think about wealth building for me, it's always intergenerational because of what it's meant for the generations before me, for me to get here, and what my responsibility is for the generations that come after me. And if you look at the wealth gap, there have been distinct moments in time where Black Americans have either been denied the ability to accumulate wealth, or it's been taken away from us. As you can go as far back as a Freedmen's Bank, right after slavery, where a bank that was set up and basically misappropriated from funds from from slaves, uh, people who are now free, who were formerly slaves, and there was never any repercussions to the GI Bill that built the middle class, that um, a lot of Black soldiers were left out of, to Social Security, where porters and maids couldn't participate, to redlining, and on and on and on. So when you think about wealth, I think about the structural and historical and persistent barriers to that wealth and what we now have to do to correct that and how we need to to move with our money and how we need to think about uh, our money. I don't think it's it's not going to correct in a generation. I read this report, you know, these reports that are equally good and make you mad and sad at the same time, which is definitively the wealth gap, which the average house black household has 10 times less wealth than the white household will not correct itself in a generation and cannot be corrected just for what Black people can do for themselves. So for me, wealth is something that we don't think about enough as a community, but that needs to be treated as an imperative when we think about uh, economic growth, when we think about our share of the dollars in terms of capital for the businesses we start, when we think about the only less than 3% of venture capital money that goes to black startup. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of holistic, but it's something that we have to think about more and you have to actively plan. It's painful and it's, it's scary. But I think if, if I think about where I am versus, you know, my father and my mother and their generation it's because of this accumulation of wealth and we start behind, mm-hmm. even if you correct for education, a white household where someone has a high school degree has more wealth than someone uh, who is a black a head of a black household with a graduate degree, and that's mainly inheritance um, and house ownership. Yes. So we start behind. So it's, we really have to think about catching up. 
Uh, Salah M as in Mary. I don't know if that's the middle name. Goss is where you can follow her on Twitter. S a l a h m, Goss G o s s. You know, as you're as you're talking, you know, we were just talking about the Forbes list. We've been talking about it for a minute, uh, and I was like, Elon Musk. I didn't know of a Tesla 20 years ago. There was no Tesla 20 years ago. And now he's the wealthiest man in the world. Right. And then, you know, we just talked today about Rihanna and then Kanye and Jay-Z. And there's a lot of black people on the list. One in five, one in 50. There's a new, uh, not a new, it was a documentary out that talks about black wealth. One in 50 black people are millionaires. But those are all individuals. What you're talking about is a, yeah. is a community wealth. It's a systemic wealth. It is, it is generational, not just your family generational, but generational collectively, but we, we need to think collectively, right? So even when we buy homes, you know, I think about Baltimore a lot because if everybody in Baltimore that had any kind of net worth got together collectively and bought like those row houses for like a little bit of money and then redid those row houses and then move people into those row houses, the whole neighborhood changes overnight the wealth of those people change overnight and now you have that collective community wealth being spread out in a way that we can't the domino effect of that can't even be measured i think but if we did that over and over rinse and repeat mississippi mount bayou we can go to you know parts of alabama we can go to a lot of depressed areas right now that are dilapidated with a mission just like politically we were talking before you came in like strategy right i think that wealth can be closed. No, I was gonna. I'm I'm violently agreeing. And if you think about that, what you're saying and doing it over and over again. Now think about if you were doing that in a system in which you were incentivized to do that, and the value of that house was correctly appraised, and the economic um, activity that you created was met by a program or some kind of um, you know. I don't even know a, a policy that propped that up and and it rewarded you for starting that economic engine in that community. That's the kind of change that I think we need to think about. And that's the kind of um, approach that will help dent, not even get rid of the wealth gap. We can do all that collective action and bargaining, but as soon as we're pouring into a system that is porous and has holes, it means less. So what I'm interested in is the systemic change and how do you have that against a backdrop that makes your trajectory soar rather than just diffusing all of your efforts. I think that's the important thing when you think about this work also. At that community organizing level, but also having people thinking about how the systems and incentives work as well. I, I feel like we, we have a lot of uh, organizers who have organizations that get a lot of checks and in their mission statement is none of what we're talking about, which would actually make it uh, easier for us to not need those community organizers. But let me, let me ask you this, Salah. Um, Salah Goss is here. When did you find out about the Freedmen's Bank and, and the, the New Deal? I, was, I remember being on this radio show my first year, and that was the first time that I read that the New Deal uh, made exceptions for people who were domestic workers and, and people who worked in, uh, on farms, which meant black people. <laughs> Until the 1970s, get, did not get, were not included into this building of the middle class. So that's, uh, that's 30 right. years, 30 years of wealth building in a middle class building that we were left out of. Then I read Mercer Barandarin's book, um, The Color of Money, and oh, I yep. learned about the, the 
decimation of black wealth from a bank entity that enslaved people put their put millions of dollars into and you, they didn't really it was four million people freed people who came back from fighting you know enslavement in the civil war put their money in this trusted place and they squandered it they squandered it yeah. all that white and then we just saw 20 2007 2008 black people getting these loans that we didn't deserve uh these subprime loans and that destroyed we lost homes and that decimated the wealth when did you learn this and why you you could just rattle it off is this because you work at visa and you you need to know these things mastercard Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I said the V word out loud. I'm sorry, Slop. Mastercard. Well, I think I'm I'm Um, struggling with master. But anyway, that's one of my ticks. But I apologize. Mastercard. Mastercard. I think my dad must be listening somewhere. But I grew up in a house that was very intentional about our history um, and about how we can move and be in the world. And I think that... You know, when I think about the bookshelf, it was before the Mayflower. It was the autobiography of Malcolm X. It was the miseducation of a Negro. So these are things that I'm used to, um, I think, being immersed in. But then also because I'm doing this work, I think it behooves us to read and understand not only the historical context, but just the facts of it in the numbers. So I'm sure I've gotten my hands on these reports as it's happened recently But I think it's also um, necessary because people tend to come to this and say, you know, it's an opinion or we could focus on many different groups. But if you just look at the history and just look at the numbers, forget a racial equity lens, it doesn't lie. And it makes it clear why this work is an imperative. So I find it very helpful just to know kind of what we've been talking about it and numbers and just data because it's not only a crucial starting point, but it's a very clear evidence of why everybody needs to be thinking about this and talking about this, not just people in the black community, it's economic growth on a national level. Um, And these numbers just tell us that. So I think I just read reports like I drink water because I think it's necessary. Ah, Salagas, Senior Vice President for Social Impact at MasterCard. How does uh, Black Woman Week today celebrate the historic uh, uh, confirmation of Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States? Uh, You are in a historic position as well. Uh, What what led you? I want to ask you, was it easy to navigate to get to this position if not, what kind of obstacles did you overcome? And if so, how? Right. And I, I absolutely never thought ever I would be in the private sector. Like I would have laughed you out the room if you said that. My, um, I think my, my passion has always been social justice. My uh, family teases me that I used to lead protests when, you know, we, we had to kill, kill meat and kill animals and the animals' rights. And I was quoting Martin Luther King when I was seven. So I've always been very interested in people having equal access. Um, so before MasterCard, I was at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for a number of years. Um, before that, I w- it was in West Africa for about five years to help set up the Soros West Africa office the grants administration and all the kind of processes I was there researching microfinance for my master's and then have worked in Egypt in microfinance in Barbados and um, went to school in Italy and France. So I've always done 
international uh, economics and development. And my reasoning was, we have a social safety net here, but in different parts of Africa where I've always wanted to work, there isn't one. And so poverty looks different, vulnerability looks different, lack of agency looks different, and I should go and try to help because I've had so much poured into me. But at some point I realized, you know what, we might have social safety nets in the US, but there's still a lot of help that's needed, especially with the black community and just underserved um, folks in general. So I made the move to come back to North America to the, to the position I'm in now. Now, luckily I've been in MasterCard for eight years and I've had four different positions. I've ran a tech lab in Nairobi. I'm mentioning all this because I've had amazing opportunities, but I think what is afforded it is being very clear, even in a big corporate company, that my interest and my expertise is social impact and is inclusion. And I'm lucky enough to be in a company that values that and invests in that. But it was hard coming in. I'd never done banking. I couldn't spell technology. Um, young Black woman in a payments company. And I had a manager, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, we hired you for who you are, not despite who you are. So when you're in the room, you're meant to be in a room, and you need to speak up. And he blocked and tackled for me in a way I didn't even realize until years later, because I was an odd duck then. I was from philanthropy had lived and worked in six countries, not the typical banker, but I have cleared a way in a space because I'm in a company who figured out how to appreciate that and how to value that. Um, and of course there's been obstacles. I mean, there's, there's no magic dust in these walls, but I think what I tell people is if you're true to what you wanna do and you can define what value that brings um, and you are you know, true and passionate about it, Usually you will find a way or you need to find your way out and go work someplace else. I love it. Um, Nairobi, Kenya, Africa, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, uh, the population explosion in Nigeria and Ghana second with people under the age of 18 is going to reshape and reframe the entire world over the next 10, 20 years. The world knows this. What does that mean for us, for black people? And what should it mean for us to know, because people, people are commodities, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, if utilized properly, what, what should we know about that, the continent of Africa and its uh, fulcrum of power? Right. Wow, there's a lot in that. I think what we should know is if we take advantage of it, like you said, it can be game changing, but if we don't, it'll be detrimental. Because right now, I think in the situation when you talk about the explosion of the population, especially youth, the first thing that comes to mind is unemployment, which mm-hmm. is off the charts. You have people who have graduated, who have degrees and can't find a job, so are selling peanuts. The economy can't absorb the talent that is being produced, and especially youth unemployment is, is very high. Now, if we think about the future of work and how it's changing, remote work, um, different pathways to get to jobs. It's not the traditional degree. That is a tremendous resource. And there are actually programs that take people um, coding in refugee camps in Kakuma in Kenya and give them jobs at Microsoft. It's possible. And so it, it should be a commodity and it will shift power in terms of talent and using a talent strategy for economic development. 
which is the new wave of what we should be thinking about. But if we don't take advantage of that, it's going to be disaffected, disconnected youth um, with nothing to do and therefore vulnerable. And that leads to national security vulnerabilities as well. So I actually think this is one that the private sector can help to solve by matching skills and not letting geography get in the way with the need. If you think about the jobs that are being created in the U.S., even if they're tech enabled, a lot of them are entry level and it's you can learn them. We have programs at MasterCard. You don't have to go to college. Um, we will hire a certain percent of entry level tech from disadvantaged communities, people who haven't graduated, single mothers, because there's definable skills that are that are easy enough to, to learn if you take away these barriers to employment like prestigious schools and certain other trappings. Mm. So if you think about this path, this 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 you know powder keg of youth, especially in Africa, and if we can match those skills with opportunities, I think we have a distinct moment in time to actually change economic trajectory of some pretty vulnerable countries right now. I, I talked briefly about Jeff Bezos and, and how I saw Amazon come from no, nowhere. And it was this notion of, you know, having warehouses everywhere and getting product from here to there. They have plenty of land in Ghana. And I know that for a fact to build warehouses and then to employ people and treat them with dignity and respect, which is just now happening here. Not not a lot. The opportunity right. to, if you are a business person here, my call center for Nubia Narrative is in Ghana. And the pe- and I just hired more people because we're expanding. And they speak English. Really, and they're beautiful and sweet and amazing. And I'm happy because these are folk that would not normally have jobs. So I'm really, really happy to be uh, in that position. But I'm small. There's people listening right now that have major companies that could do more. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so let's continue this conversation. I want to have you back uh, more frequently. I feel like we got to get some things I done. I would love to come back. I told you last time I was a fangirl and I am not. That is not an exaggeration. We are a Karen Hunter family. So anytime I would love to come back and keep talking to you. What you're able to do with your show is amazing. Um, and, and I'm just honored to be here. 